Flannel Graph Sunday. Woo! All right. I'm so excited to see all of you today. Welcome to Restoration, if you haven't been welcomed yet. Uh, we started a series called Poison and Wine last week, as Sean mentioned in the song we just sang. It's looking at the complexity of our relationships. Now, now definitely marriage, but not exclusively to marriage. Because, see, any relationship that, that should display a closeness, a teamwork, kind of a mutuality, uh, a care, concern, any relationship that would have honesty in it, would have laughter in it, would have life in it, would have respect in it, would have love in it, those are relationships that would fit into this topic. Now, for most of us, those would be friendships. Those would probably be our family relationships. And those would definitely be uh, significant relationships or significant other relationships or marriage relationships. And so the reason why we called it poison and wine is because there are actions and there are attitudes, there are words that we can say that can bring great damage and cause harm. And yet there are also some that can bring a great healing, not just a healing, but a satisfaction and an enjoyment that could be described as a fine wine. And so that's where we're going in this series. And we want to look at what we are doing. So my prayer is that, that we would look at our actions, our words, and our attitudes. We'd look at what we do versus what is done to us throughout the series. So today, I want to look at this idea of closeness. And I think it comes straight from Scripture. So the question that we would start with is, how close do you feel to your best friend? How close do you feel to your family, the people who live in your house? And if you're married, how close do you feel to your spouse? Like, not just close, but really close. This would mean relationships that you're thinking about would be honest relationships. You could be brutally honest. You would be so secure, and you're so comfortable with them that you can say anything. You, you're so trusting of them that you don't have to hide anything. And you can be wholly and truly yourselves in these relationships. So how close are those people? For most of us, they're not that close. For most of us, we don't experience those kinds of relationships. And today we're going to look at not only why, but more importantly, what we can do about it and what God has done about it. So with that, we started last week in Ephesians 5. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Otherwise, if you have one, we'll be going back and forth between a couple different places that fit together. We started in Ephesians 5 last week because there's a long, long dialogue about relationships and, and about marriage. And at the end of that, it says that, that we are members of Christ's body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but I'm talking about the way Jesus and the church are one. So I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So in the midst of that, we see this mystery that is, it's more about marriage, or it's more than just marriage. It's about the way that Christ loves the church. But yet, at the same time, there's this piece that he says in actually referring back to Genesis, that if you look through the argument in the letter, uh, and if you missed last week, we talked about it last week, but if you looked at the argument in the letter in Ephesians, he doesn't actually need to say this. 
He doesn't need to refer back to this. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two were united into one. Why does he do this? Because he has a purpose. He, he wasn't thoughtless about writing this. And I think we can, if we look at that, we can see the purpose, and then we can help figure out why we do the things we do. Um, because I think he's trying to get us to remember something about the way that God created our relationships to work. So to that, we have got to go back to Genesis 2. We'll see in the story in Genesis 2 that um, God had made these amazing, this amazing creation. Everything was good, except uh, when he made humans, kind of the pinnacle of his creation. In the first chapter, we see that man and woman were created at the same time, that God's image couldn't be contained in one person or in one gender, so God makes male and female, he created them. And yet, in Genesis 2, we see, oh, everything's good, but it's not good for the man to be alone. So, we see that God puts him to sleep, and he takes a rib out of his side. Uh Uh-huh. And he takes a rib out of his side, and then he creates woman. Woo! Whoa, man. That's what it says. No, he uses a poem. He says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she will be called woman because she was taken from man. And there's this oneness because it says, the, the verse that the writer back in Ephesians quotes, this is why, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother And is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Because they were one. Now the man and his woman. were both. The man and his wife were both naked. But they felt no shame. There's this oneness. That the writer is trying to get at. Between humanity. That we are supposed to have. A good relationship. Between each other. But he did not create us. In this void. This is a blue void. He didn't create us there. He created us in a world. And Ephesians, or Genesis describes this world. <clears throat> I got ahead of myself. Uh, he describes this world and he puts them in a garden. In the garden, it goes through a description about rivers, about trees, about water, and about life, and about the fruits that are there. And then it talks about gold, resin. And onyx. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, some people see these four rivers as a place where we can find the Garden of Eden. But I think the writer is not trying to tell us where it is. He's trying to explain what it's like. See, gold, resin, and onyx are descriptions that are given whenever God's presence is around. There are descriptions that were given at the temple where God's presence dwelt. There are descriptions that are given in Revelation at the end of the Bible when humanity joins God and, and it's described in this new heavens and new earth and gold and resin and onyx are there and they describe God's presence. Rivers flow and rivers always teem with life. And so water and fruit would be abundance and life. That's what the writer's trying to get at in this story is that everything is good and it's abundant And Genesis describes it as a garden. Now, Song of Solomon describes it as a vineyard. So, Song of Solomon 4, verse 10 says, Your love delights me, my treasure. 
my bride. Your love is better than wine. Your perfume is more fragrant than spices. They, they eat of the fruit. They drink of the wine, and it's all good. They're satisfied. You're my private garden, my treasure, my bride, he says. This is describing not just a marriage, but the, the connection and the oneness that we are supposed to have between us and God, us and each other, in harmony with creation. That's what the writer is trying to get at in the way things were. Not necessarily the way things are. At least, I don't know how many of you feel like you could characterize your relationships as vineyard relationships. See, if, if the writer is actually trying to get us to talk about how we're supposed to be in this relationship with God, and we're supposed to be in this relationship with each other, and we're supposed to be in relation to the world, then, then verse 25, And the man and the woman were both naked, and they didn't have any shame, has nothing to do with how much skin is shown. Vineyard relationships are talking about how we can be 100% honest with each other, how there's nothing that is between us, how we're not hiding anything. Vineyard relationships would probably be described best like we can be totally honest with a friend. Vineyard relationships would be um, when, when a family member gives us a compliment, we receive it as a compliment. Um, vineyard relationships in marriage, when there is a wet towel on the bed by one of the two people in the relationship, and the wet towel has been on the bed for about 499 times, in a vineyard relationship, the neat one, you can decide if it's who, who it is, the neat one would pick up the towel and would say, I think you forgot to hang this up. Could you please do that? Or the neat one would say, oh, look at that. You did it again. I bet you just had a lot on your mind. Vineyard relationships, if you've never been in a vineyard relationship, I think a vineyard relationship is best described by the innocence of a young child. If you don't have any young children, just imagine what it was like to be a young child. When you were a young child and you first had the ability to get dressed, you were so excited about it. You didn't think about whether the clothes matched. You were just happy that you could pull these things on and you ran around the house going, look at me, I'm dressed. You didn't go, does this match? I don't know. And after that, once you were dressed, you would say, mom, look at me. And then you would sing because you could create something with your voice. And you didn't have any crayons, so you'd sing. You didn't draw. And when you sang as a young child in your mismatching outfit, it was good. You weren't thinking about whether or not you were on pitch. You were not thinking about whether or not someone, your parent, was going to raise up a 10 or a 12 or a 7. And you were not, not thinking about about whether or not it was good. See, if you're a little kid, if you created it, it was good. That's the vineyard. That's what I think the Genesis writer is trying to explain, and it's what, it's still what I think God is trying to tell us. But most of us do not live here. In our friendships, in our marriages, in our families. 
We'll see why in the next story. If you know it, bear with me. If you don't, then, hey, you're going to learn something. Genesis chapter 3 says that the man and the woman were in their vineyard. It was all good. And then someone came along and said, you know, God doesn't really want your best. I'm paraphrasing. He got the man and the woman to doubt that God's word was true, that what God said was good, that in this perfect connection between each other and God, that somehow they were missing out. The Bible describes that, symbolizes that as a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that was the one thing that they were not supposed to take hold of, but the man and the woman, because they were both there, they both grasped for that. They rebelled against God. They rebelled against God's goodness. And in Genesis 3, we learn that when they ate from the tree, she ate from the tree first. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. At that moment, their eyes were opened. They felt shame, and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together to try and cover themselves. As the story continues through that chapter, we find out what fig tree or fig leaf relationships look like. We find out in the story that that people who live amongst the fig trees feel shame. They cover themselves. They're often afraid. They hide. They avoid and they blame. I think fig tree relationships today can be described like this. You try to be honest with a friend, but you're a little bit scared that they're not going to take it the right way. When a family member compliments you, you're quite skeptical that it's actually a compliment. What do you mean by that? Uh, people fail to respond the way they're supposed to respond, and so we get a little bit scared of what we should say. We hide a little bit more. We're not totally completely truthful. And if, if a relationship in the vineyard could be described as a small child, then I think a relationship in the fig leaves could be described as teenagers. Because when a teenager comes out of their room, you better believe their clothes are matching. Not only are they matching, they're also the right brands of clothes because they are always thinking about what other people think. No teenager walks out of their room except a very rare teenager walks out of their room and is like, Mom, I want to sing to you. Because they don't think what they have to give is good. They think they're going to be judged or evaluated, and they walk around in unbelievable fear. Remember the wet towel situation for the 499th time? The wet towel is sitting on the bed. Well, if you live in the fig tree relationships, this is kind of how that goes. The neat person grabs the towel. I want to make sure I get this right. Why do I have to remind you of this? How many times have I reminded you of this? You know, I feel so disrespected when you don't put the towel on the rack. Maybe that's getting close to home. See, I was talking to a friend of mine who'd been married. He was a, he was a bachelor for a long, long time, and he, he got married, and he's been married for about two years. And he did not realize that, that even if you love Jesus, uh, and even if the person you marry loves Jesus, that sometimes that we live in the fig leaves. And so how that displayed itself was 
he found out that his wife asked him a question and that question wasn't really the question that she was asking. She was going to go out with her friends and so she came out of her room dressed and ready to go. She looked very nice. She had a decent outfit on and she said, honey, how do I look? Do these match? Well, he thought the question was, do these match? He's only been married for a couple of years. And so he said, well, no, not really. Now, guess how she felt? Yeah, there are no vineyards anymore. No, she moved away. She was trying to, she was trying to poke him for a little reassurance. Hey, do these match? And he said, no. No, they don't really match. And she got a frown on her face. And he said, oh boy, I really hurt her. So he goes, well, I don't, I mean, honey, you look great. You could wear that. You could wear anything or nothing. And, and you look great. And everybody that thinks kind of like a stereotypical man goes, yeah, good answer. And everyone who doesn't, would be also some men and most women, would go, oh, dude, you missed it. Now she is coming with a sword. Because <laughs> that wasn't really the question. But in our fig tree relationships, we miss those things. And when we miss those things, it produces tension. And when it produces tension, we start to question how we feel about ourselves. And when we start to question how we feel about ourselves, we want to make sure all of a sudden the fig leaves don't seem very adequate. They don't seem like the right protection. And so we start to protect ourselves. We're worried that people are going to throw things at us. They're going to make comments to our, towards us. And that the fig leaves are not going to be enough. And so we put up barriers. Except those barriers just further separate us. The barriers make it harder to see what the other person is actually feeling. And so what we want is acceptance, what we want is security, but what we get is apartness, what we get is hurt. What we continue is this tension and this misunderstanding. And see, the Bible describes this in this story of rebellion that says, yeah, you're not only separated from God, which is a really big important deal, you're also separated from each other. And for the man, you're going to scratch out a living in the ground trying to provide and protect, and it's never going to feel like enough. And for the woman, you're going to have pain in childbirth, and that's going to hurt. And yet there's this one phrase. And you, saying to the woman, will desire to control your husband, and yet he will rule over you. See, when there's separation in the fig tree relationships, we feel this anxiety we feel overlooked. We make assumptions. I just assumed that when she said, do these match, that's what she meant. And it leads to hurt, and our response is control. And although this particular part is talking about marriage, I think that works for all our relationships. When we feel like we are overlooked, when we feel like someone assumed, when we feel like someone tried to hurt us, threw a sword at us, we try to control the situation. And it often ends in more tension, which ends up in more walls, which means that we try to have to have more protection. 
And so we put ourselves in a castle, in a fortress, where we can protect ourselves because certainly the person that we most care about or the people that we most care about, all we see is them throwing swords at us. And so we're afraid or we've been hurt a lot. And so we protect and protect and protect and wind up very, very separated. Fortress living looks like this. Now we are terrified to be honest with a friend. Now when we make a compliment to someone, when we try and praise someone, when we try to give somebody a life-giving comment, they receive it as an attack. Do these clothes match? No, not really. They see it as an arrow. Well, I didn't know what you meant. Well, why are you so sensitive? You just have a lot of trust issues. Yeah, well, I think next week we're actually going to talk about how to throw the gloves off in the right way and fight fair. But for this week, we just want to set up how our words communicate and what they do when we communicate. So we're terrified to be honest. We throw the message over, but it's seen as an attack. The couple with the wet towel in the fortress living looks like this. The neat one grabs the towel with a little bit of fury and fire in their eyes and says, you obviously don't care about me. You, if you did, you would pick up this towel because I've reminded you like 500 times. I feel completely unloved. I feel completely disrespected. <sighs> Fortress living means that we walk around always wondering who's going to hurt us next. We walk around wondering if it's even worth putting ourselves out there, if it's even worth stepping out of the castle, and so some of us don't. I've sat with pre-married and post-married couples who, who can't even let themselves out. They're not even sure which chamber of the castle they're in because their heart is so deep in it. They feel so wounded from the arrows that the other person has shot. This Living, let's just be honest, kind of sucks. It's awful. And it's what many of us face day in and day out. And yet, the Bible says it doesn't have to be this way. We can get out of the fortress. Proverbs 18 says it really well. Words kill. Words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. That's the message's way to say it. And yet, we can look at that and go, yeah, I know. I try to say something that's loving, and it comes across as poison. I hate that. Why do they keep seeing that as an arrow? And we can, we can feel like we're paralyzed. Or we can read it and go, wait, wait, wait. Words give life or words kill, but we choose. God has created us with this mind and his, his image within us so that when God speaks, creation happens. When God speaks, life happens. When we speak, we have the ability to give life or death, but life. We choose. Well, we can see this in a whole new way now. Maybe we could see that when someone who's hurt, who's living in the castle, who's shooting an arrow across, maybe we can realize that it's not an attack. 
but they're actually trying to send us a message. They're trying to say, hey, I am scared. Maybe they're sending a message that says, hey, I feel completely, completely vulnerable. Hey, I, I just need some reassurance. Hey, husband, when, when I ask if it matches, you know, and I'm going out with my friends, that's a cue that says women don't dress for men, they dress for women. So I want to feel confident with my friends and yet my friends, so I want to feel comfortable. And yet at the end of the night, no matter what, I want to know that you're going to be here and you're going to say, hey, I love you. That's what I'm trying to send you. It just came across as I didn't trust you, but I was trying to send this message. We can change the image. We can be honest about this life and death situation that our words aren't neutral, that they either build up or tear down. And if we do, then we have hope. If we do, then, then there's a chance that we can actually send the right message. So the first thing I think we need to do is change the image. So maybe they're not sending arrows or swords. Maybe you can send a balloon. That might work. We, didn't, we couldn't afford the balloon, so we're going to have to just reuse that, repurpose the vineyard. Shh. My wife asked if I was going to make that noise. I said, yes. Shh. Now... <clears throat> Now, if you've gotten hurt a lot and you've gotten hurt by one particular person and they start sending a message across, even if it looks like a balloon, smells like a balloon, and is not shaped like an arrow, you're still going to think, oh boy, they're sending another arrow, so I'm going to send one back. And if you've been hurt over and over and over, you're going to have to send a lot of balloons. And you have to know that the first three or four or seven or 17, are going to be popped. Not because they don't trust you. Not because they, well, actually, not because they don't love you, but probably because they don't trust you. But you keep sending balloons. And you keep praying and, and, and trusting in the fact that that person who gave birth to you has your best. That that person who said, I love you, on a wedding day, still does. That that friend who said, hey man, we are going to be friends forever. We are going to be committed to each other. That they still are. If we start to change the image, remember that there's a message on that arrow, and we start to trust that that person still loves, then, then maybe we can have the courage to leave the fortress. Now, you can go read a whole bunch of books on, on who's supposed to come out first. Um, the couple of the experts say, you know who's supposed to come out first? The one who's the most secure. The one who's the most mature. That's the person who's supposed to come out first. Now, maybe the man, maybe the woman, maybe, you know. This is more about God than it is about us. So... If you are secure in your relationship with God, then you come out first. We hear the message that's in their words, not in their attack. The second thing we need to do is we need to drop our stinking word weapons. 
Now, if you've grown up in a family where everybody fights and they fight loud and they fight verbal, this is going to be really hard. In my family, we didn't fight. We didn't have to make a better argument. We just had to make a louder argument. So guess what I brought into my marriage? Well, I disagree with you. Well, I disagree with you. It didn't go over very well. It's still not working very well, but I'm trying. I'm trying to drop them. And this is where we get like super, super, super practical. Like counting to 10 before we speak. Just in case we're not sure what we're holding. Is it a balloon or an arrow? I'm not sure. I'll count to 10. If that doesn't work, we'll take seven deep breaths in and out. And sometimes I get to seven, I forget what I was mad about. Joys of being a little scattered. Whatever works for you to drop the word weapons. Some people, they'll count to 10. It won't work. They'll take their seven breaths. It won't work. They have to actually leave the situation. That's okay as long as you tell them you're coming back. Whether it's a friend or a family member or a spouse, I can't talk about this right now. I'm, I've got some word weapons. I'm going for a walk. I'll be back in 30 minutes. Okay. I can, I can come out. Because I, I, I'm going to choose to believe you. Change the image. Remember there's a message in that attack. Trust. Number one. Number two, drop your word weapons. Because you can't control what the other person is going to think, say, or do. But you can control what you say and do. And God says it all comes back to this thing from the beginning. Since we lost connection with God and with each other, in, in response to that, we have this desire to control each other. And so stop controlling and drop the weapons. And then risk unashamed honesty. Tell the person how you truly are. Our families are too fragile. Our relationships are too short. Our friendships are too short. And and our marriages are too broken for us to think that we should be indirect about this or passive-aggressive about this or just passive about this. If, If you can't, if you can't be unashamedly honest because the other person is going to ridicule you or attack you, then you have way bigger problems than you can talk about. We have a care team that's experienced with, with relationships. It's why we're going to talk about conflict next week and about how to fight well. But you've got to be able to bring who you are because your heart trapped in a castle will just shrivel up and die. There's no light. There's no life there. But we can risk unashamed honesty. And the most important thing, it's all spiritual. This 
remember what Paul said in Ephesians 5? That, that I'm talking about a great mystery. This is the way Jesus and the church are one. That there's a profound thing that happens when a man leaves his father and mother and comes united to his wife because they were already one. There was this oneness with God and creation and each other. And it's all spiritual. It's all trying to get back to this thing that was broken a long time ago that actually the story all throughout Scripture is Jesus is the one who restores that relationship. Actually, in the same letter to the same people who he's talking about in Ephesians 5, earlier in the letter, Ephesians 2 says, Christ himself has brought us back together, has brought peace to us. He's united people that were so different, Jews and Gentiles, and he brought them together. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility that separates us. God didn't send Jesus so that your marriage could be a little bit better, that your friendship would last a little longer. God brought Jesus ultimately to restore people to himself. This is why it's possible to come back and, and, and maybe experience some of the pleasure, some of the enjoyment some of the security that comes in the vineyard. Because God wants to be in total, complete, naked relationship with us. And he says he brings the two together. So that you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens amongst God's holy people. You're members of God's family. God now protects you, puts a banner over you, he says throughout scripture. He tells the story of how he goes before them in a cloud and, and with them with a pillar of fire. And, and it's this presence of God. And the writer continues and says, Together we are his house. We are built on the foundation of of the apostles and the prophets, the one who spoke for God, but Christ himself is this cornerstone. And it can be the cornerstone of all of our relationships, but certainly marriage. This isn't just possible. It's what God wants for our friendships, for our families, and for our marriages. So today, where are you? Where are you living? Where has, where have the people closest to you in your life put you? Have you just had too many swords and arrows and you are here? You're in the fortress, and you don't know how to get out. Just saying that might alleviate a world of pain. Would you say that, you know, I'm not in a fortress, but, man, those fig leaves, I wouldn't survive without them. I wouldn't know how to be totally honest. I wouldn't know how to pass some of the blame. I just lived there too much. Or do you say, you know what? I actually can be pretty honest with the people that I'm closest with. Now, it's, it's easier, which is why we decided to say it that way. It's easier to say, where has someone put you? Where do you feel like you're living? 
but, but the more mature and actually the part that we can control is where have your words put others? Where have the things that you've said and the things that I've said placed other people? What do you need to confess? And what do you need to drop? Because Christ has destroyed the wall of hostility. We do not have to live in the prison or the pain of our past any longer. In Christ, we are saved. In Christ, we are reconciled. In Christ, we are free. The power of the pain and the power of the sin, it doesn't have hold of us anymore. We just have to choose to believe that. So just think about where your words have placed people and what you need to do. Let's pray. God, we want to speak life. We want to live open. I believe we do. Because covering and and blaming and attacking is is just not worth it. But some of us, we don't know how to get out. Please, God, as we sit and sing and listen for your spirit, teach us, correct us, bring healing and hope.